0: Good morning. How is everybody? Thankful. thankful. Good. That's great. I'm glad we have one thankful person, one good person, and some... I'm going to assume the rest of you are just uh, holding your tongue this morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm Mike Geke. I'm one of the pastors here. Ryan, our lead pastor, is um, in Southern California this week doing some of his doctoral work. He'll be back next Sunday for our big day, our big grand opening of our new spaces, and we're really excited about that, excited about baptism. I hope you guys will be here uh, for that. We are nearing the end of our series called Soul Songs, which has been a study of the Psalms that are actually songs. And today, as we near the end of this series, um, we are going to discuss what I really think is one of the most um, powerful, the most personal, the most vulnerable the most theologically rich, the most grace uh, or gospel-revealing psalms in the Bible, and that is Psalm 51. If you guys want to turn there, we'll be getting there in just a second. Um, I have to warn you, I've had this terrible cough that will not go away, so I have prayed for a 35-minute reprieve this morning, so you guys can pray with me. But I have a cough drop in my mouth if you hear something clicking around. But as I entered this really busy week, it's it's crazy around here right now, and um, personally busy, and work busy, and and preparing to teach on this, um, what can be kind of a heavy text, I um, decided to go on a social media fast, um, which was glorious. In fact, I think I may just stay in the middle of the fast. But I found myself this week, um, just naturally because I wasn't inundating myself with everyone else's opinions, with everything that's going on out there in the world, I found myself more sensitive and more attuned to what God just might be saying to me. I felt more connected to um, what what I look at as my micro world, this world that God has placed me in right here in San Francisco, the world of my family, the world of my church, the world of my neighborhood, more attuned to how he might be just directing me in the day-to-day of my lives instead of getting so overwhelmed by so many things that, that are so big and so out there. And I want to encourage you as we get into this morning that you would just ask God to clear your mind of all of what is going on out there that may be consuming you, may be um, have taken hold of your mind may that you may be obsessing about that you may be thinking about there is a place obviously to engage the world and engage the culture but in this moment here today as the spirit fills this place and as we open God's word i believe that god wants to deal with you and he wants to deal with me he very much dealt with me this week as i saw that what has consumed me out there has in many ways caused me to ignore what God is doing in here. And if my in here doesn't change, if your in here doesn't change, then you will simply become part of the noise and the chaos that is out there. We don't want that to be the case. We want to be light. So let's ask God this morning to change our in here. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for the way they teach us how to feel and how to feel in the light of your truth and what a great freedom there is in being real but also clinging always to the reality of who you are and what your word says for us in our lives. God, I pray this morning that the hearts in this room would be soft. God, as we talk about something Um, that can be hard. We talk about sin. We talk about guilt. We talk about repentance. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you have for us this morning and that you would change our insides. And God, I pray that as you change our outsides, that we would be light in this world, that as you change our insides, what people see on the outside would be changed in a very real and authentic way. God, we love you. Pray that you would be pleased by what happens here today. And we pray that you would be made much of in this place today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are studying Psalm 51. It's a, it's a story, a song of guilt and repentance. And, and I was wondering how many of you, like me, when you are confronted with a wrong that you've done or a mistake that you've made or an error that you might have committed, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in work, or whether it's between you and God, How many of you say things like this, yes, I did that, but, the but, the dreaded but, the the worst word in all of parenthood is that, oh, yeah, I did that, but, and then comes the excuse, right? Yes, I did that, but I really don't see what the big deal is, or yes, I did that, but I could have done something a lot worse, right? And surely I've done all these other good things, and surely those other good things somehow are going to influence how you feel about this bad thing that I did, or this is one we do very frequently. Yeah, I did that, but look what all these other people have done. Look what he or she did. I think if we are honest about how we look at ourselves and how we inter- interrelate with other people and how we treat them, we're probably all prone to comments like that. And even if we don't say them, we often think them. And the way we treat our bad acts, the way we treat our sin, um, oftentimes uh, evidences that we believe those things are true. I think we're also very flippant with um, our apologies, with our I'm sorry statements. I know that I fall into the trap, and my kids would tell you this 100%, of pushing my kids into saying I'm sorry or apologizing when they do something wrong. Apologize to your sister. Tell your mother that you're sorry for what you did. Stephanie and I do that because it's our great desire that our kids would be soft about their sin, they would be soft about their disobedience, that they would care when they disobey, that they would care when they wrong someone, that they would care when they hurt someone. But the truth is, a forced I'm sorry, or anything that is forced, is really worthless in the end if their hearts are not truly sorry. And today we see, a, in this psalm, we see a picture And really, in in many ways, what we see really is a guideline of true repentance. We see a picture, um, not just of someone who is caught in their sin, but of a broken heart, of a true desire for change. We see the outcome of a heart forgiven and saved and restored and full of joy. Today, we see a song that is born out of sin And born out of full and true godly sorrow. Psalm 51 shows us, I believe, how guilt is done well. And how guilt, godly sorrow over our sin can lead to transformation. Let's read this together. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered. On your altar. This psalm is one of the few psalms, just a handful of psalms, that very clearly um, in, the, in the heading of this psalm tell us of its historical origin. The heading of this psalm says, A psalm of David, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, I know many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba, but to fully get the magnitude of this psalm, you have to understand the magnitude of the sin of David that inspired it. This sin that inspired this is found in 2 Samuel. If you want to turn to the left and go there, it'll also be on your screen. 2 Samuel, uh, really the story is in chapters 11 and 12, but we're going to read verses 2 through 5 of chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch And it was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This, this section of 2 Samuel 11 describes the sin of King David. You remember King David, the man after God's own heart. It describes this horrific sin. And if you were to read on in 11, you would, <coughs> you would discover that David begins to scramble to cover up his or, and to fix his situation. You see and read of a heart that is hardened towards his sin. He becomes manipulative. He becomes callous. And he ends up digging an even deeper hole of deception and sin. He first tries to cover his sin by bringing Uriah home early from the battlefield. He's hoping that when he comes home early that he will see his wife. And he hasn't seen her in a long time. He's hoping he'll come home early, that Uriah um, will have sex with Bathsheba. And then naturally they will think that the baby she's carrying is Uriah's. Which is not just bad in and of itself. But imagine, there's, there's, there's no mention of, of what Bathsheba is going through in this time. And David's um, manipulation to try to fix this situation. And Uriah comes home, but Uriah is too noble. He, he's not going to um, have a conjugal visit with his wife when all of his fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. He, he, he refuses, and so David's plan fails. And then David digs his hole deeper, and he arranges to have Uriah killed. And you should read this. It's a a horrible way, a cowardly way, of setting up Uriah to die on the battlefield. And he does that so that he can then marry Bathsheba. And it's so sad, it describes how brokenhearted Bathsheba is over the death of Uriah. David marries her and covers up his sin that way, he thinks hoping people will assume the baby is legitimately his. It's a story of adultery covered by murder. And it's a story of a dark, hard, selfish heart that is exposed in the process. Second Samuel 11:27 says that it says this, "The thing David did displeased the Lord." Possibly one of the greatest understatement verses in scripture. God is mad. And he sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And, and Nathan comes with a parable about a really, really horrible man. He tells David this parable, and David is just outraged at the at the sin of this man in the parable. And David denounces the man. He says, This man should die. And Nathan says, You are the man. And it's not like you demand. It's like, you are the man in the parable. Nathan then outlines not just David's sin, but he gives this whole picture of the amazingness of the relationship between uh, God and David and, and the Lord's favor in David's life. And he condemns David for completely disregarding and despising the Lord in his sin. And as he confronts David, David breaks And he simply says with no buts and no explanations and no qualifications, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says that while God has forgiven him and while his life will be spared, he says, you have scorned the Lord with your sin. There's something you just, just can imagine how painful that was when that realization hit David. And he says, the child Bathsheba is carrying will die. It's a tragic story. And from that story comes today's song. Psalm 51 is one of seven what are called penitential psalms. They're psalms of repentance. And I think as we think about repentance, it's important to remember that there is a repentance that saves us. There's a big repentance where we turn away from ourselves, where we... Surrender our lives to Jesus. It's an acceptance of our need for salvation and God's provision for our salvation in Jesus. There's that repentance, but there's also a daily repentance for those who follow Jesus. God's word reminds us as believers that while we are saved forever, we are called to confess daily our sins to God. And we don't do that to be saved. We do that because we are saved. It's a recognition of the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us. A recognition of the holiness of God. A recognition of the evil of sin. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to ask for forgiveness every time we pray it. Over and over in the New Testament, we are called to repentance of our sin, and we are called to that because, as Christ followers, our rebellion, the disconnect between our flesh. And our new lives as spirit-filled Christians becomes clear in our hearts and clearer in our hearts. And it prompts us to confess those things in our life that are contrary to who we say we are in Jesus. As I looked at 2 Samuel and I looked at Psalm 51, I realized that we see two very different Davids. We see a manipulative, unrepentant, um, tactical, hard David in 2 Samuel. And in Psalm 51, we see a broken, contrite, repentant David. And between those two Davids, we see Nathan. My thought this week as I studied this, as God worked in my heart as I prepared for this sermon, my thought was that maybe God would use this study of this psalm as a Nathan in some of you. Maybe God orchestrated this morning for us to be studying Psalm 51 as a way of sending Nathan to confront you. He confronted me this week. Maybe some of you have lived your life seeking to find meaning in the ways of the world. Maybe it's through sex or pleasure or money or power or relationships or whatever your thing is. And maybe you can identify with that sense, that very real sense of digging one hole just to get out of another one. Maybe Psalm 51 is calling you to repentance and surrender for the first time. Or maybe you have a relationship with Jesus, yet you know that you have pursued things that just do not line up with who Jesus died for you to be. And if you think that we're looking at this psalm with this murder and adultery, and you think that those things are somehow bigger than your sin, I just want to remind you before we talk about repentance, I want to remind you of the many ways that God outlines the different ways our rebellion can look to Him. Yes, sexual immorality and murder are clearly included. But I I encourage you to read Romans 1, read Galatians 5, read 1 Corinthians 6, read Colossians 3, Rebelliousness towards God includes many things, including coveting, just desiring what someone else has. has, Malice, envy, strife, deceit or lying, gossip, slander, haughtiness, which which is another way to say pridefulness, boasting, disobedience to parents is in Romans 1. Thank you, Jesus, for putting that one in there. Foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, idolatry, drunkenness, swindling, enmity, divisions. If I think about it, I did or was tempted to do half of those things just on my way to church this morning. We can become so blind. To the sin that is infiltrating our lives, that is separating us in fellowship from God, that is causing us to dig holes and to run from God to cover ourselves rather than opening ourselves to what God has for us. And I encourage you this morning, allow God to speak into your heart. What are you blind to? What are you numb to in your life? What are you seeking to cover up? What are you hoping that no one will ever know about you? God, through this psalm, I believe, is challenging you as he challenges me. My hope is that you will open your heart to this Nathan in your life this morning. So with soft hearts, with open hearts, what do we learn about how to respond to our sin and our guilt from David's response to his? The first thing that I see in Psalm 51 Um, is that David owns his own sin. David owns his sin. This is in verses 1 through 7. So we know from 2 Samuel that clearly David's first response to his sin was to work hard to cover it up, was to try to deflect his guilt. But by the time he penned Psalm 51, we see him fully owning the reality of his sin. What does this look like? In verse 1... David seeks God's mercy. By doing that, he is admitting that God owes him nothing. He knows that all of his past good cannot somehow balance out the evil that he has done. The word mercy means something unmerited. It means something gracious. He knows that he needs to be made clean, as he states in verse 2, but he cannot earn that on his own. We also see that his sin is weighing heavy on him. In verse 3, he says, basically, I cannot shake my sin from my head. He says, my sin is ever before me. He hasn't just sloughed it off. It is front and center in his life. In verse 4, he acknowledges that against God alone has he sinned. And you might think, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? They were also victims in this act. But David knows that what makes sin sin is that it is against God. Clearly, he hurt other people. Clearly, we hurt other people in our bad behavior. But the horror of sin is that it is an attack on God, it is always an act of rebellion against God. And David admits this powerfully, against you and you only have I sinned. Then in the second part of verse 4, not only does David not make excuses or mount a defense or try to justify his behavior, he acknowledges that God is justified and blameless. What he's saying is that no matter the consequences of his sin, that God is justified In his actions. What we see here in David's words is an amazing picture of God centered repentance. God is God. Life itself is mercy. Forgiveness is not a given, but a gift. Bought, as David shared with us what this means, bought by the blood of Jesus himself. In verse 5, David also acknowledges that his action was not a freak accident. He didn't say, Gosh, you know, normally I'm so good, I don't know what happened to me. He acknowledges that what he did is actually part of the, the deepest part of his character. He knows that he is not a good person. When David talks about being brought forth in iniquity, And he says, in sin did my mother conceive me. It's not blaming his mother, and he's also not dissing his mother. He's not saying this is her fault. And he's also not justifying his sin because he couldn't help himself. I have heard people say this. I'm sure probably I've said something like it. I know some of you probably have said it. Oh, well, God knows I'm not perfect. As some sort of justification, I've also heard people say, if God is sovereign and I sin, therefore... It's his fault. David is not doing that in this situation at all. In fact, he is doing exactly the opposite. He is owning his sin nature, the nature that every one of us possess because of the fall. It's what David talked about. It separates us from God, our sin. David is acknowledging that. And what he's saying is that without God's rescue, his evil actions will only increase. Finally, in verse 6, he's very aware of the way that his actions go against God's desires when he talks about lies versus truth and wisdom versus foolishness. David is heartbroken over his sin. And I wonder how many of us in the room can say the same thing. Are you heartbroken over your sin? The second thing we see in this is that David begs for renewal in verses 8 through 12. I think this is fascinating. David doesn't just want everything to be okay. I think this is fascinating if you think about it in the context of how we often operate. David is not concerned about being forgiven because he knows that being forgiven is better for his sake. That's not why he wants to be forgiven. He wants to be renewed, he is seeking transformation. David wants to be changed. He wants again to hear. And when he says, I want to hear joy and gladness, it means I want to live and experience joy and gladness. He wants his brokenness to result in rejoicing. He is asking God not just to impact his record, but to cleanse his heart, his heart, the core of who David is. He doesn't just want to be pronounced innocent. He wants something deeper. He asks for a right spirit. When he says that he wants a right spirit, what that means is he wants an established, unwavering spirit. I imagine David, as he writes this, looking back and on everything that he's done, and I imagine just being horrified at the picture of his own ugly two-sidedness. David says, I want a firm and a right spirit. He's tired of being wishy-washy. He wants to be one man, a man of clean heart and of steady spirit. In verse 11, David asked for God not to cast him away from his presence or take his Holy Spirit from him. As Christians, we believe and know that we can never lose our salvation. John 10, 28 says that no one can ever snatch us out of God's hand. Hebrews 13.5 says that he will never leave us or forsake us. We cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose fellowship with God. Our sin can disconnect us in intimacy with God. Many of you know that several years ago I left uh, my wife to pursue a life of sin. God ultimately brought us back together and brought restoration and reconciliation there. But when I left her, I walked away from everything I knew to be true. And the truth is, I did not lose my salvation when I walked away, but what I lost was my intimacy with God. It was an incredibly empty and dry time between God and me. And that is what David is talking about here. David has known intimacy with God, and he misses it. He knows that his illicit sexual activity with Bathsheba promised him some form of intimacy, but it has ultimately delivered nothing but pain. And he is saying essentially when he says, um, don't cast me away from your presence, he's saying essentially, God, don't treat me as someone who's not in relationship with you. God, confirm to me that I am yours and restore to me the joy of your salvation Of your saving me and giving me access to you as my Abba Father. I think in our human nature so often we just want forgiveness to make us feel better. Or we just want to escape the consequences of our sin. But in this picture in Psalm 51, David is is reminding us that those who are truly forgiven are not content to remain as they are. They are committed to being transformed into something wholly new, but also something full of joy and gladness, something clean in heart, something stable, and something, and this is the powerful thing about repentance, something that needs sin less and less because the joy of the Lord is enough. My question for you is, If you are truly repentant, are you committed to being changed? And number three, David accepts the universal calling of the forgiven in verses 12 through 15. I love this part of this psalm. This is one of those psalms that I remember reading over and over again several years ago. And it's this part that really jumped out at me as someone who had gone through a horrible sin and had had seen joy brought back. This part where David accepts the universal calling of the forgiven. When we realize the depth of our sin, when our hearts break for our offense against God, when we experience his forgiveness and his invitation to relationship and a restored or maybe for the first time intimacy with God, two things happen. First, all of that that has happened in your life, if you are forgiven and have, have seen that happen in your life, all of that should not be containable. If my forgiveness has not impacted me to the point where I want to share it, then something is blocking the full, my full receipt of the benefits of that forgiveness. I thought about this when we moved here four years ago from Texas. Um, somebody in our church in Texas called me, invited me to the Toyota dealership and bought me a brand new car off the lot. Wrote a check, I drove a Toyota Highlander off the lot into to San Francisco. And I wanted to tell everyone. I mean, it was a huge blessing to us, but even more, I wanted other people to know of the amazing graciousness and generosity and selflessness of these people who blessed us in that way. How much more is our forgiveness a gift like that? How much more valuable is our forgiveness than a Toyota Highlander? If we know what we have received, if we know the grace and the generosity and the selflessness that was behind that sacrifice, it should be incontainable. The second thing is when we surrender our lives to Christ, He gives us, each of us, every one of us who know Christ, a new calling. If we know him, we have a calling to go out into the world and to share the story of redemption. The gospel story is a story for all people. And if we know him, we have experienced the gospel story. And that should flow out of us and we should desire the world to know it just like David did. I'm going to teach transgressors your ways that they too may experience what I have experienced. David says in verses 13 through 15, If you will wash me, if you will forgive me, if you will change me from sorrow to joy and gladness and rejoicing, I will not keep it private. I will tell the world. I will teach other sinners your ways, and others will be broken for their sin, and they too will return to you, and they will experience what I have in you. My tongue, he says, will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. Our forgiveness by God for our sin should never be private. We have a calling, and David accepts his calling, the calling of the forgiven to share what God has done for us and what God wants to do for them. One of my favorite pictures of this, I think, is in the book of Titus. Paul gives this very brief before and after story. This should be the testimony of every one of us Who claim to know Christ. This is in the book of Titus. It should be on the screen. Chapter 3. Starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. So aware of what we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God. Our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We all have that story. And is that story in your life uncontainable Is your forgiveness uncontainable? Is there something in you that just can hardly bear to keep the magnitude of what you were and what you now are through Christ silent? We have a new calling. David accepts his. David then ends this psalm in verse 16 and 17 by acknowledging the important truth that our actions are meaningless if they are done from a dark heart. We are basically, if we just do what we're supposed to do and nothing inside has changed, Jesus calls us whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23. We cannot truly repent or turn from anything if we do it begrudgingly. If we do it begrudgingly or because we feel like we have to do it for something and our hearts aren't broken, we will always go back to what we left, always, The truth is, as Christians, we should never, but between now and the time we meet Jesus face to face, we should never be um, unbroken. Our brokenness, our contriteness, that word contrite, it simply means sorry, being sorry for your sins. Our brokenness, our contriteness should mark us. It's what marks us at Christ followers. And it's that ongoing brokenness and contriteness, that ongoing realization of what we were and what we now have hoped to become and who we are now and what we hope to become, that is what opens our hearts for the truest of joy, the truest of happiness for our entire lives. I've been reading a book um, by a lady named Kay Arthur, and I love... Uh, listening to Kay Arthur because she always calls people that she's talking to her beloved. It always makes me feel good. I'm like, I'm Kay Arthur's beloved. So, beloved. I believe Psalm 51 is our Nathan today. This isn't a popular thing to talk about. I joked with the staff to be ready for the feel-good sermon of the year. It's not popular to talk about sin and repentance. But I couldn't help but wonder, as this psalm impacted me in my preparation this week, I just wondered if there was some, if maybe our failure to get this, to get the magnitude of our sin and the magnitude of what was sacrificed to cover it, if maybe our failure to get that is why our American Christianity just seems often so flat and powerless and weak. I think for many of us, if we've grown up in the church, many times repentance is sort of a simple word that is an access card to heaven. Maybe the problem is we aren't really devastated by our sin. Maybe the problem is we don't beg God, we don't plead with God for renewal and for joy. Maybe the problem is instead of being unable to say silent, we are embarrassed to tell our stories of grace and forgiveness. And I wonder today who might be sitting in this room under the heavy burden of unconfessed sin. If you are someone that God designed Psalm 51 to impact, then you might be very uncomfortable right now. You might be wondering what I'm about to ask you to do. Or you might have just shut me out a long time ago. I think sometimes we push back against the whole idea of repentance because while we want to be free, we fear what repentance and change and life change might actually mean for us. But I also know that many of you deep, deep down want to be free from the shackles and the burden of your sin. And even though... As you're confronted with it, you might resist. Deep down, you desperately want to be free. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. That's the same kind of healing that Ryan talked about last week. Not so much a circumstantial healing of physical conditions, but a deep healing of the heart and the soul. Remember, this psalm, Psalm 51, is really about how to do guilt well. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow, in the ESV it says godly grief. Grief over our sin leads to repentance that is without regret. Acts 3.19 says to repent that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. In Romans 2, it says, it says don't, don't disgrace the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God who, who offers us freely freedom that leads us to repentance. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died so that you would not have to live under the burden of your sin, So that you wouldn't have to have a life of constantly digging one hole to get out of the other. He came to refresh you. And isn't that word an awesome word? How many people in this room need to be refreshed? In a minute, we're gonna have a time of prayer. And my prayer is that you, like David, would accept the confrontation of Nathan this morning. That you would confess your sin. That you would lay it out there. God, I pray that your hearts would break. And that in that, you would receive the gloriousness of his forgiveness. And then you would commit to being renewed and to being refreshed. Because that's what God has for you in this. On my way to church today, I was listening to a hymn. And um, I just printed one verse of it as a way to close. And then I'll lead us in a time of response. The hymn is from, C, it's called See the Destined Day Arise. I just loved this verse. And if you're sitting here today and you're fully aware of what you've received, if you're fully aware of the the horror of your sin, and if you've repented and you're wondering how to carry out your calling, this, this this is our time of praise like David talked about in Psalm 51. Holy Jesus, grant us grace in that sacrifice to place all our trust for life renewed, pardoned to sin, And promised good. Grant us grace to sing your praise. Round your throne through endless days, ever with the sons of light. Blessing, honor, glory, might. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ, we praise your name. When i to have a time, a response, and, you know, I'm not going to ask you to do anything dramatic. But I'm also not going to keep you from, if you need, if there's something and you're like David and you have that sense of being something just weighing over you that you need to get out and you need to confess and you need to admit, I'll be down here. I'm glad to pray with you. But otherwise, I encourage you, just sit at your seat and connect with God. Pray for him to reveal things in your heart. If you're not heartbroken over your sin, ask him, to show, ask him to show you what was required to save you from it. He's patient with us, and he'll take us as he finds us. But this morning, my prayer is that you would receive Psalm 51 as your Nathan, your confrontation. And, like, and exactly like David said, you say, I have sinned. Against the Lord. Let's pray. We'll have a few minutes after I pray to respond. If you would like to pray with me, you are welcome to. Otherwise, we'll pray and then I'll come back out and close this time. God, it's overwhelming sometimes to think that our envy, our malice, our jealousy, Our gossip, our slander, our pride, our hatred. It's overwhelming sometimes to think that Jesus hung on the cross for that. That he gave his life for that. And we treat it so flippantly. And God, I pray today that you would just break our hearts for our sin. God, the blessing of the gospel is that when we come to you brokenhearted in our sin, you wipe it clean. You purge us with hyssop. You cleanse us. You promise to create in us a new heart and a right and a steady spirit. You promise that even in our brokenness, God, that we will rejoice in you. And God, as hard as the consequences of our sin might be, you have spared our lives and you offer us freedom. And you offer us great joy and liberty in the midst of whatever damage our sin has done. God, I pray that we would be a people who don't look at the sins of others with contempt, but that we look at our own sin with contempt. God, that we see our own sin and our own struggles, God, and we see the beauty of your offer of your son to cleanse us to make us white as snow that your blood washes over us and miraculously makes us new God I pray during this time that you would open hearts God I pray in this room there would be people who come and say I hear you God I heard your Nathan this morning and I confess my sin to you God, I beg with you to renew me and to make me new and to transform me. And God, I accept my calling as a mouthpiece of your forgiveness and your grace and your gospel to this world. And God, I pray that as we become a people who do guilt well, that you would use this place to transform this city and beyond. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a time of response and then we'll, I'll come back up and close it out.